Would you please open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Galatians as we continue in our sermon series in Galatians. This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3 and we'll begin our reading at verse 15 and I'll be reading down through the end of that chapter which is verse 29. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 through verse 29. Beginning in verse 15 we read these words from the Apostle Paul. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before, the, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is God's word, may he now bless it, that we would understand it and be able to apply it to our lives. And so as we begin the, the, our just exploration of this passage that is in front of us this morning, one of the things that's kind of obvious from the very beginning of it is that Paul is just jumping in mid-thought. And you see that if you notice in verse 15 where he says to give a human example. And so Paul is, is continuing uh, the argumentation that we've seen before. Going back into chapter 3, if you were here, you'll, be, you'll remember those sermons that I've preached. But in fact, when we think about what Paul's doing here, he's really sort of making one argument through Galatians. And so when he picks up here in mid-thought, it really is sort of a continuation of everything he's been saying in the letter of Galatians about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Or to say it another way, what he's doing is he's putting before the Galatians the gospel of Jesus Christ and that that gospel is all about Jesus and all about grace and not about our effort and not about our work and not about what we can add to the gospel. And he's arguing that case over and over and over again. And I think that's something for us to think about a little bit today. I mean, every time you've come in here for these sermons in Galatians, what you have heard me say is, is, and tell you is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason has to do with the fact that we need to hear it all the time. There's this expression that, and you, some of you have heard this before, or I'm, I may have even said it here before, to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Have you heard that? Preach the gospel to yourself daily. It's just constantly reminding us of what it is. Now, why do we have to do that? Well, we have to do that because I, we may be able to articulate the gospel. We may think rightly about the gospel, but really resting in it, resting in the fact that this is all of grace. It's all of Jesus. I don't think that's the easiest thing for us to do. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn, Come Thy Fount. You remember that, that line in Come Thy Fount? 
prone to wander, right? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's all of us. I mean, that's, a, that's an expression of our hearts. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, and that's a, it's, it's sort of depending on self as opposed to depending on God. And so over and over again, what Paul is doing in Galatians is putting God in front of the Galatians, putting Jesus in front of the Galatians, putting grace in front of the Galatians, putting the gospel in front of the Galatians. And he does that here in this passage, and he does it in three ways that I'm going to talk to you about. And this is rather extended passage. There's a lot of scripture here, so we're going to move pretty quickly through it, but there is a lot of scripture. So he talks about God's promises. He talks about the law's purpose. And then he talks about how the gospel brings us together, and he talks about Christ's people. So he talks about promises, purpose, and people. The, God's promises, the law's purpose, and purposes, and, and Christ's people. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about as we move through this passage. So the first thing he talks about here, and he's, he, again, he's getting at what the gospel is, is he's reminding the Galatians, and, and I'm reminding you that God makes promises to his people. He makes promises. He's a God of promise. He commits himself to us. He comes to us. He obligates himself to us. That's really what grace is. And he talks about that. He brings Abraham back up. Now, if you were here, as we looked at the earlier parts of, of chapter, chapter 3, he talked about Abraham at that point. And I think he, he pulls on Abraham. He pulls on the Old Testament because I think those false teachers were doing that as well. And I've said that to you. But in verse 16, notice how he says, what he says at the beginning of this verse. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, what he's referring to is he's referring to that, that co those covenant promises, that covenant of grace that God established with Abraham back in, in the book of Genesis. If you go on down to verse 18, he says, he says more. He says, for the inheritance comes by the, not the inherit, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what he's pushing on is that the way that the inheritance, all the things that God said he would do for Abraham come, is they come by promise. They come by, they come by grace. They don't come by the law. That, that little line in verse 18 where it says, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Even that word that he uses there in the Hebrew, it means to freely give. It means to graciously give. This is what he's driving at. That when God comes towards his people, he comes towards us in grace. He comes towards us not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy of it, not because we can earn it. He didn't come towards Abraham in that way. Abraham just trusted God. He didn't do anything to earn God's favor. God came to him. And God made commitments to him, and God made promises to him. In fact, earlier in the service, Alejandro read from Genesis chapter 17. And that's one of the places where we see God's covenant, covenant binding with Abraham established. And, and here's the language of, of Genesis chapter 17. Listen again. He says, verse 6, I will make you exceeding. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. Verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land. Verse 8 again. And I will be their God. That language. God speaking saying I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. What all of that is about is that that our relationship with God, it's, 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 and it doesn't mean, let me be careful here so you don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there aren't things that we as, as believers in Christ that should form our lives and define our lives. But in another way, I could say when it comes to the power of relationship and life, it really is God. It's one way. It's God coming towards us. We absolutely need God's grace in everything. And he's showing us this, and it's, that it's always true. And he pulls back into the Old Testament. 
And I think what he goes on to do is he makes sure that we understand that that's what's still true. It's true for us today. And so here's how he argues. And, and you know, this is a, it's a rather difficult passage. And so as we move through it, I hope I'm gonna, I can explain it to you in a way that you're getting Paul's argument. So what Paul is basically doing is this. He's saying this is the way God came to Abraham. He came in a covenant of grace, bound with Abraham, God towards Abraham, right? Now, the law is in there, and he talks about when the law comes in, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But what, what Paul is doing is he's saying that covenant of grace that came with Abraham, here's the law, say this is a timeline, here's the law, over here is Jesus. What Paul does is he jumps from here all the way over to Jesus, because what he wants us to know is that covenant of grace ratified with Abraham is true for us as well. That's always the case. That's always what grace is about. So in verse 16, look at the whole of verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Now that's, that is really interesting language. That's interesting the way Paul's arguing. Because what he's saying there to Abraham, now Abraham would have understood, when, when God promised, came into a covenant commitment to Abraham and to his offspring, Abraham would have understood that if these things are going to happen in my family line, that means that they're going to, they're going to connect to Abraham, Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob, that would have been right fulfillment, Israel, all of that would have been right fulfillment of that. But it wasn't ultimate fulfillment is what Paul is saying. That the ultimate fulfillment is offspring, not offsprings. The ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace to Abraham is found in whom? Jesus. And in, in one way you could put it like this. That that covenant of grace that was established with Abraham, it was established with Abraham and all who are in Abraham, and then you push it further. It was established with Christ, the ultimate fulfillment, and all who are in Christ. Okay? So he's saying Old Testament to New Testament, it's all about the grace of God. And the law did not replace that. That's the point. The law did not replace that. And so he argues both from, from man-made covenants and then he argues from just what the covenants are. So if you look at verse 15, he says to give a human example. This is why he says that. He said, I'm going I'm to give you an example from, from your interactions, from your agreements, from your covenants. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even if a man-made, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So what he's saying is, guys, listen, even when you make a covenant with one another, once that's ratified, it doesn't change. It doesn't become something else. It's that covenant, okay? And then he picks up further in verse 17, and he just lays it out. So you get his point. Verse 17, he says, this is what I mean. The law, okay, which came 430 years afterwards. He's talking about a time frame, the law coming. All right, here's the covenant made with Abraham. Law comes 430 years afterwards. You guys follow me? He says, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, remember what the Judaizers were doing. The Judaizers were basically saying to the Galatians, they were saying, you need Jesus and you need to do law. That's what they were saying. You need Jesus and you need to do law. And what Paul is saying is throughout the Bible, that has never been the way to understand the law. It's not like the law presses up beside grace. It never did in that way. In fact, it's always been about grace. That's the only way we can have a relationship with God. And when, when the law comes, the law does not come to nullify that grace. And the law doesn't come to add to that grace. That it's always a relationship about grace. And that's the point he's making 
that it's all about the promises of God to us. And those promises in Jesus are this, and I want you to know this today. I hope you know this today. Here's what God promises us. He promises all of us if we will simply trust in Jesus Christ alone. Put our confidence, our hope, our faith in Jesus. God will save us. That's it. It's not by, by improving ourselves. It's not by earning it. It's not by meriting it. It's not by effort. It's not by our works. It's not by having a great personality. You don't lose it when you mess up. It's not any of those things. He promises you that through Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. Now, I will tell you, We struggle at times with believing the promise. We'll say we believe it. We articulate it well. But I know all those times when, when we mess up in life, and then after we messed up, we kind of go, I, gotta, I have to do something to straighten myself out. Instead of just repenting, which just means what? Turning back to Jesus, right? We think, well, I've got to clean this up, got to clean it. It's, it's all. What it is, is it's making our justification dependent upon our sanctification or making our acceptance before God dependent on us. That's what we're doing, and we do it all the time. Now, why do we do that? Why do we fall into that? If you were here last week, you may remember me saying that one of the reasons why I think we have to preach the gospel to ourselves daily is because we also hear daily messages that are counter to the gospel. That's what happens. And so the reason we have to constantly bring the gospel to our hearts and minds over and over again, do not think you get past the gospel. Because if you think you get past the gospel, what is happening to you is you have fallen into being either a legalist or a licentious person. You have to be on the gospel all the time. And so here are the counter messages. Last week I told you about these. The counter messages to the gospel will be things like this, and we hear them from the world all the time. If you want to advance, you got to work hard. If you want to do well in school, you got to study hard. If you want to get anything, you got to merit it. If you want to be accepted, you got to be pretty. If you want to be accepted, you got to be handsome. If you want to be received, if you want to really be liked, you got to have a great personality. And over and over again, we hear messages from people all the time, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not funny enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not handsome enough. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. And we hear it so much that we just sort of make that little jump. Well, if that's what everything is like, that's what God must be like. Isaiah 55, which we read for the call to worship, says what? God's ways are not ours. Praise God for that. Hallelujah. His ways are not ours. God makes promises to us. He promises. He promises to save us through Jesus Christ alone. And here are the counter messages. They're the counter messages of living in a world of broken promises. They're the counter messages of our own lives when we know we have broken promises, we've not kept our word to other people, and we have had, if I ask you to put your hand up, which I'm not, if I did, every last one of you could probably give an example of someone that did not keep their word with you, and probably it's happened a lot. Someone who broke promises. I mean, we're in the middle of a political season. We've just gone through two conventions. And one of the things we got, we go into the political conventions, wink, 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 we do that. Why? Because we know they're going to say all kind of stuff they're going to promise us. I don't care what party it is. They're going to say everything. They're going to promise you everything. That if you just elect them, everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be better. The world is going to be great. 
And we go into it like, I, I know they're lying, but maybe they, if they just did 5%, it would be okay. It, I mean, it's the, it's the way we process. I mean, it just is. Because we know people are being deceptive all the time. We put that on God. And so we go, you know, I know I'm saved by Jesus alone. I know it's all about the gospel. But then in the heart, back in the back of your mind, here's what you probably, preacher, preacher, I know I still got to do something, right? It can't be that good. It can't be that sweet. It can't be that, that much of God's grace. And what Paul is saying is, this is our relationship. This is it. This is it. We trust God. We trust Jesus. He does everything for us. And to that, we just like, praise God. Thank you. Because I would have no other way if it wasn't for that. Okay. So that's the first thing. Second thing, God's promises. The second thing Paul does is he talks about the law's purpose. Now, here's, here's part of the reason that Paul does that. Paul was a master communicator, a master preacher. And what I, what I mean by that is Paul was able, and this is what makes a person a good speaker or a good writer or whatever, he's able to, to identify his audience and then perceive the kind of questions or objections an audience may have. And Paul was excellent at that. I mean, he really was. And it's why Paul, throughout his letters, would, he would say a particular thing and then he would come back and answer a question that he knew that people would have. One of my professors in my doctoral program used this, this uh, he used this expression, he taught all of his students this, and it's a great expression. He said, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a great expression, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? That's a good expression for you to hear from Mike Campbell, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Here's, here's what happens. I will say, or anybody will say this, this, and this, and here's what you'll do. You'll think that because this, this, and this was said, that means all of this. But if all of that wasn't said, don't hear what I'm not saying. That's what Paul's saying, okay? Now, how does Paul get at that? So he's already said, it's not about adding the law, none of that. So in the minds of the Galatians, then they're probably going, well, what in the world did God give the law for? Why did he give it? And if you look at verse 19, he answers that. Why then the law? And look at what he goes on to say. It was added because of transgressions. He doesn't say it was added because of sin, even though that would be true. He didn't say it was added because of corruption, although that would be true. He said it was added because of transgressions. And that specific word means a violation. Okay? That's what a transgression is. It is a violation of a standard. So what he's getting at, I'm going to out-preach God here today from this thunder. All right? I'm going to keep on going and you guys keep looking up. And when it hits right at the right time when I'm talking about the gospel, that means you better listen. All right? <laughs> So here's a transgression. Here, here's what, it, what we're talking about. We're talking about a standard, and that's God's standard, being held up against sin, okay? So one of the ways, now not all the ways, so don't misunderstand me. I think there are other ways of thinking about the law, but this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the law, one of the purposes of the law is it serves as a mirror by which we can now see our sin. Now, if you remember, sin didn't come with the law. Sin existed in the garden. So it goes all the way back to the beginning when Adam and Eve fell in sin. When the law came, what does the law do? The law defines the details of what it is. The law exposes it for what it is. That's what the law does. So Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, who I think, I think got this right, but not he didn't get everything right when it came to the law. I think Calvin nuanced this better when he talked about how the law also is an expression of, of God's perfect will, which it is. But here's what, here's what Martin Luther said, and this is, this is true. 
He says, the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God and the well-deserved wrath of God. Law does that. It shows us for who we are. It exposes us. It reveals our weakness. It reveals our brokenness. It reveals our sin. And that that sin is against God Almighty. That's what the law does, right? And so what Paul is saying is, yeah, okay. <laughs> I can preach without a microphone. So don't run out if the lights go out and all that. I'll just come down and I can keep going. You guys know I'm loud enough. I know you know that, right? So what Paul is saying here. Is he saying the law can't replace it? The law had a very different purpose than this. And so look at verse, verse 21 again with me. Verse 21, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. It can't be. It wasn't like you had the, law, the promises that say, Here's how God saves. And then the law says, No, they don't, they're not the same thing. That's his point. So it's not contrary. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying the law was never given for that purpose. The law was never given to give you life. The law could not possibly give you life. It couldn't do that. So the law has this, this, this sort of limited and even secondary, when he said it was added because of transgressions, it has this secondary and limited purpose until Jesus Christ comes. And, and then he, he, he keeps adding. What he's doing is he's building the case so we don't stick on the law. If you look at the end of verse 19, into verse 20, he talks about how it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay. Now, I know if you're sitting here looking at this, it, you're, you're paying attention to me. You're not asleep. You're going, what in the world does that mean? And you are in good company. In fact, when I was studying this week, I saw one commentator actually said there are 300 interpretations of that. And I promise you, I did not read any of them. That's how, I mean... 300 interpretations of that. That's kind of confusing. That means that nobody really knows what that means, but here's what he's getting at. Okay. Here's the point, regardless of what he means. Okay, get this. God comes by promises, which means God comes by grace. God made a covenant with Abraham. How? God said to Abraham, I will. God came to Abraham. That means promises, grace are what? Close. That's God close to us. That's life. Law. What does he say there about the law? The law came, and it did come from God, through angels, whatever that means, through an intermediary, Moses, and to the people. What is that? Distance. You get it? You see what he's doing? He said, here's life. Here's distance. Life is God moving towards us in grace. Distance is, is law. It keeps us away, and it has to point us to the one who saves us by grace. And so he keeps arguing. If you notice as we move on into he's still on law, okay? He says in verse 20 and verse, verse 22, I'm sorry, down through verse 25. He says, but, but the scriptures, and, and that, that's a synonym for law. He's still talking about the law. So the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we are held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, so here's, here's what he's doing. He's putting two images in front of us. 
And the two images to describe the law that he uses here, one is imprisoned, one is a guardian. Now let's think about each of those. So being imprisoned by the law, it's this imagery, you could, I mean, you could flesh it out like it's a prison warden or a prison cell or a jail or whatever. And what he's basically saying is the law imprisons us, okay? And there's no way you can escape that prison except through, say it, Christ. The only freedom from the law, the only freedom from this prison, the only hope of escape, the only hope of life is Jesus Christ alone. There was a movie I saw a couple of years ago called Public Enemy. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It was a movie about, it's actually a pretty good movie, about the early 20th century gangster John Dillon. And John Dillon was, he was brazen beyond belief. I mean, just crazy kind of brazen. And he, I mean, they showed this scene in this movie just to give you a sense of the man's character, what he was like, where they were, the FBI, everybody was out for him. He was like the, the number one you know, public enemy that they were looking for. This guy, in the midst of all of that, walks into a police station, literally walks into the station, walks up where all the police are. He's so brazen that they don't even notice this, is, even though they have pictures of him all up on this board. And John Dillon, I mean, it just shows what he's like. But here's, here's some of the, the, the scenes in the movie that were interesting. Beginning of the movie, he breaks into a prison in order to break his friends out of a prison. Okay? Later in the movie, because they know this guy is sort of an escape artist, here's what he does. He's, they catch him. They put him in jail. And so they put him behind multiple locked doors with guards on the doors and the military around the prison. And he still escapes. Now, here's my point. Brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are here, you will never do a John Dillinger on the law of God. That's what Paul's saying. You are locked in and cannot get out except through Jesus. That's it. The second imagery he uses is of a guardian. That's not a guard. It's a tutor. It's a disciplinarian of a child. That's the imagery he's using. And so what what a guardian would do is a guardian would have responsibility of the child until the child reached a certain age. Until he reached that age, and once he reached the age, what would the guardian do? The guardian would let the child go. Paul says here, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here's the point. The Judaizers are coming to you, Galatians, and they're saying it's about Jesus, and it's about your doing of the law. You're pushing the law up against Jesus. They're totally missing it. That when Jesus comes, what must the law do? The law must let go. That's what he's saying. It has to all be about Jesus, okay, not the law. All right, all that leads into the last thing that I'm going to say to you today. So you, you see God's promises, grace, God's law, the purpose of it, showing our sin. Then the third thing he deals with is how that grace now not only brings us in the relationship with God, but it actually forms us into a relationship with one another. It makes us Christ's people, okay? And so this is, this is the... You know, when you talk about the gospel, what Galatians is doing, Galatians has this vertical component to it that defines it. It's about how do you have a relationship with him. But that's not all that Galatians is doing. 
And I think sometimes in our exploration of this book, we've missed this other part, that, that there's a horizontal focus to Galatians, that it brings us together in the people of God. And so if you look at verse 26, he says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now that language of sons of God, that would have been language that Israel would have grabbed. That would have been language that defined the Jews. They were the people of God. They were the sons of God, not the nations, not the Gentiles. The Gentiles were without God in the world. But Paul says here that in Christ Jesus, we're all, Jew and Gentile, all in Christ, sons of God, all the people of God. How? Through what? Through circumcision? Through law keeping? Through faith. And so down in verse 29, he makes this statement. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So all the promises made to Abraham, all of those promises, the promises of relationship with God, the promises of forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, the promises of a new heavens and a new earth, and all the rest, all of those promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and we receive them in Christ. Not because of effort. Not because of what we do. And so we have him. And then that means everything. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. That's, that's the language of union. That we've been united to Jesus. Those who are baptized into Christ. Have put on Christ. So when you, you now begin to think. Okay what is it that makes us different. If it's not our law keeping. What is it that makes us new? Well, it's this. It's that God is at work to change us. It's that God has given to us the spirit of Jesus. It's that we now are putting on Christ by the means of God's grace. And, and what that means is that the characteristics and the virtues and the intentions of Jesus begin to reshape us and make us new. And so it's not this. Don't misunderstand it. It's not you are saved and then you are the same exact person and you just try harder. That's not Christianity. Christianity is what God has done to justify you, to make you right before a holy God that you could not do for yourself, and then God Almighty changing you, God giving us new hearts, God indwelling us by His Spirit so that we are able to put on the character of Christ. And when that happens, then everything becomes new. That's His point. Our relationship with God becomes real but also we begin to have a relationship with others that we may have formerly been hostile towards. And is that not what he's dealing with in verse 28? He's giving categories of hostility. So he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. Those are groups of people that were hostile towards one another. There is neither slave nor free. There would have been animus between that socioeconomic groupings. There are no male and female why? Why is that not the case anymore? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean we're all the same. Philip Ryken, who's a president of Wheaton College, he made this statement about this passage in his commentary on Galatians. He said, the church is not a raceless, classless, androgynous society. It's not. We're still very different people. But we are one in Christ. So yesterday... I was getting, getting dressed, and I, I turned on the news, and it was on CNN, and I watched this, this news segment. At first, I almost flipped away from it because it was about Pokemon Go. Okay. <laughs> All right, let me, see, let me see your hands. How many of you know what Pokemon Go is? 
Good gracious. You guys are good. I was like, I had to look it up. I, I'm not, so I could tell you this story. I had to look it up to see what it was. So if I, if I tell you about Pokemon Go and I'm totally off base, please ign, you know, just ignore the ignorance of your pastor. For, I think I got it partially right. So, okay. So here's what I think Pokemon Go is. <laughs> Pokemon Go, and I'm going to tell you this because I'm going to tell you what the news story was about. It wasn't just about Pokemon Go. So Pokemon Go is this, this game that you can have on a mobile device. Am I, am I, are you tracking with me so far? Okay. All right. And Pokemon is a virtual character. Okay. And so what Pokemon Go allows you to do is to have on your screen, because it's GPS and I, I assume it's camera, the real life world that you're in. Okay. All right. So you, when you look at your screen, you see the world that you're in, whatever that is. You don't see a virtual world, you see the real world. Okay. So Pokemon, that character gets put in there, and that's a virtual character, so that it looks like you're seeing that virtual character, Pokemon, and you can battle with it and all that, in the real world. Is that right? All right. All right. So if you come to Old Cutler, the preacher is going to talk to every age group. I want you to know that. All right, here's the story. There was some major city that they were in. I don't, I don't know what. I, I caught it middle way through. But it, the reason I know it was a major city is because the, the, it was full of all these diverse groupings of people. Right? And they were all in this park gathered together. And the news reporter from CNN was interviewing them because all of them were out there and they were all playing Pokemon Go together. Right? And as she started interviewing people, here were the things that they were saying. And it just grabbed my attention. They were going. You know, with all the things that are happening in the world and how bad the world is and all the divisions that exist in America today. And they talked about specific divisions and all those things. All those things being true. And then they said this over and over again. It didn't matter. Different colors of people, different religions. I mean, it was a bunch of different kinds of people. Then what they said was this. Pokemon Go makes us one. I was like, what? Lord, Pokemon Go makes us one? Oh, what in the world? Pokemon Go makes us one. (laughs) But you got to love it, right? Because there's just this longing. We know, we know how fallen and broken and divided and hurt and miserable our world is. And we know that's true in our country. And here's what I want you to know. Pokemon, Pokemon Go doesn't make us one. Jesus makes us one. And what I want you to know today is that that needs to be seen in the church of the living God. We are one in Jesus Christ. And it's all a work of God's grace. And it's not because I make you act like me or make you look like me or make you think like me. It is only because I think about Jesus the most. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and grace towards us. Thank you for the way you're working in our lives. It truly is in Christ alone. We stand together to sing that song with joy and gratitude. In your name we pray.